Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you visit the website and give them a call, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll visit with Michael Cannon, director of health studies at the Cato Institute. Jim Carafano is vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. So we're talking to him about the withdrawal uh, and where we go from here from Afghanistan. We'll also visit with my wife, uh, Linda. She'll be joining us as well. It is September the 3rd, and on this day in 1783, the American Revolution uh, finally and officially came to an end when representatives of the United States, Great Britain, Spain, and France signed the Treaty of Paris on September the 3rd, 1783. The signing signified America's status as a free nation as Britain formally recognized the independence of its 13 former American colonies and the boundaries of the new republic were agreed upon. Florida, north to uh, Great Lakes, and Atlantic Coast, west to the Mississippi River. The events leading up to the treaty stretch back to 1775 in April on a uh, common green in Lexington, Massachusetts, where American colonists answered King George III's refusal to grant them political and economic reform with armed revolution. On July the 4th, 1776, more than a year after the first volleys of the war were fired, the Second Continental Congress officially adopted the Declaration of Independence. Five difficult years later, in October 1781, British General Charles Lord Cornwallis surrendered to the American and French forces at Yorktown, Virginia, bringing to an end the last major battle of the Revolution. In September 1782, Benjamin Franklin, along with John Adams and John Jay, began official peace negotiations with the British, the Continental Congress had originally named five-person committee, including Franklin, Adams, Jay, along with Jefferson and Henry Lawrence, to handle the talks. However, both Jefferson and Lawrence missed the sessions. Jefferson traveled delays, and Lawrence had been captured by the British and was held in a tower in London. <clears throat> the U.S. delegation, which was distrustful of the French, opted to negotiate separately with the British. During the talks, Franklin demanded that Britain hand over Canada to the United States, this did not come to pass, but America did gain enough new territory south of the Canadian border to double its size. The United States also successfully negotiated for important fishing rights in Canada waters and agreed, among other things, not to prevent British creditors from attempting to recover debts owed to them. Two months later, the key details had been hammered out, and on November the 30th, 1782, the United States and Britain signed the preliminary articles of the treaty. France signed its own preliminary peace agreement with Britain on July, January the 20th, 1783, and then in September that year, the final treaty was signed by all three nations in Spain. The Treaty of Paris was ratified by the Continental Congress on January the 14th, 1784. Kind of a messy process. I don't know involved in this uh, messy process, but it makes sense because, of course, they all had interests in what was happening in the United States, what is now the United States. Well, beginning on September the 16th, the state of Florida will start issuing a $5,000 fine to businesses, schools, and even government agencies that require people to show proof of having a coronavirus vaccine. Promises made, promises kept, the Santa spokesperson, Taryn Vinsky, said Wednesday, according to the Orlando Sentinel. The fines, however, will not apply to cruise lines because of a federal court order that at least temporarily blocks enforcement of the law for that industry, according to an earlier statement from the governor's office. DeSantis is appealing that decision, of course. We believe the ruling will be overturned upon appeal, and we are confident in the legal basis of Florida's vaccine passport ban. And according to Secretary Christina Pushaw, she said in an email, Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed, the state's only statewide elected Democrat and a candidate hoping to challenge DeSantis for governor next year, was critical of the fines. She said it's in an emailed statement to the newspaper, Governor DeSantis is retaliating against Floridians, Floridians who tried to protect themselves and their communities from COVID-19. 
This is not only going to common, uh, goes against common sense, it also is an insult to the free market principles he claims to champion. She really said that. Anyhow, the Miami Herald reported on the history of the law. Earlier this year, the Republican-led Florida legislature passed a bill banning businesses, governments, and schools from requiring vaccine passports, essentially proof that people seeking their services have gotten a COVID-19 vaccine. In May, Governor uh, DeSantis signed the bill into law. The legislation now uh, allowed the state's Department of Health to issue fines not to exceed $5,000 per violation. Violators will get a notice of their infraction and will be allowed to appeal it. If the appeal fails, violators will have 30 days to pay the fine. So this really flies in the face of what a lot of folks are trying to do in private businesses and elsewhere. I really applaud uh, Governor DeSantis for doing this because all of this right now is they're fanning the flames of fear again, and the fear is more noxious than the vaccine itself or the, the virus itself. For more than nine months after Pennsylvania certified the 2020 election, Republican lawmakers in the state are launching a partisan probe into the vote by soliciting sworn testimony on irregularities and scheduling a hearing for next week. Thursday's announcement by the committee overseen by Senator, Rhett, uh, Senator Chris Dush marks the first, uh, the start of the forensic investigation that hardcore supporters of former President Donald Trump have been clamoring for for the battleground state, spurred on by Trump's allegations of widespread fraud. Dush, a uh, Trump backer who is in June t- uh, toured the state, the site of a contentious audit going on in Arizona, was last month tapped to chair the Pennsylvania Senate Intergovernmental Operations Committee so he could push forward on the election probe. In any event, this is all very good news. I'm very pleased to see that they're going to be moving forward with a forensic audit in Pennsylvania. The first hearing is scheduled on September the 9th in Harrisburg. Oh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of resistance to this, but the, the previous attempts at the forensic probe in, of the 2020 election by State Senator Doug Maestrano was shut down last month following a tussle between him and Senate President Pro Tempore Jake Corman over his methods. Corman, the Senate's uh, top Republican, sidelined Mastriano, a vo- vocal voice for Trump, after the two traded barbs. In any event, the audit is going forward. That, that now means that we have some activity and audits going on in Maricopa County, Arizona, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Georgia. I think. Uh, this is uh, grinding on very slowly, but it would be great to see the results. But American people do deserve to know on a bipartisan basis whether there was cheating in this election enough to af- affect the outcome. <clears throat> well, B- Bard- Biden has had a hard week of surrendering and yelling at us. It's been so hard on him that the America doesn't appreciate or understand the extraordinary success that he brought about in Afghanistan. He needs his nap time and some ice cream to deal with our offensive ignorance and whatever the heck they're doing to him in Delaware to keep him going, despite his incoherence and incompetence. Who is he seeing on the long weekends? One would think that would be a rather important question. Biden has made at least 18 trips back to his home in Delaware since he took office. As we previously reported, they don't keep any visitor logs so the folks who keep me are, are there to see him. You would think they'd be having such horrible decisions in Afghanistan trying to rescue Americans might be uppermost in his mind. Apparently not so much. Vacation is more important. But even some of his own staffers were horrified that he blew off people and left Americans trapped in Afghanistan, and that is according to Politico. So he's on vacation. He can't do a lot of harm there right now. Hans von Spaskowski, a manager of the Heritage Foundation's Election Law Reform Initiative, and a senior legal fellow of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies said President Joe Biden's margins of victory in Arizona, Nevada, and Wisconsin in 2020 presidential election were narrower than the state's respective totals of unaccounted for ballots. Biden's margin of victory in Wisconsin was approximately 20,000 votes, despite the number of ballots missing or undeliverable, amounting to 83,000 votes, noted that uh, von Spesowski. Remember, the margin of victory in Wisconsin was only 20,000, and that basically 82,000 ba- ballots were either lost or undeliverable or rejected, he said on Wednesday's edition of uh, Breitbart Daily News. And that's four times the margin of victory, he said. 
They are, these are numbers that the Wisconsin Election Commission itself reported to the Election Assistance Commission, he added. Uh, Vance Baskowski uh, shared details of the unaccounted for ballots from, from a Daily Signal report. The Wisconsin Election Commission said 6,500 absentee ballots were mailed out or sent back by the Postal Service as undeliverable, and 3,000 ballots came back that were re- rejected. Long story short here is that this is, this is uh, over many states, and again, more proof that these audits are very necessary. The Public Legal Interest Foundation supported the approximate 15 million mail ballots were unaccounted for in the 2020 election. Well, a majority of American voters say President Joe Biden should resign because of the way the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan was handled which left at least 13 U.S. service members dead and more than 170 Afghan civilians dead as well. Results came from the latest Rasmussen poll released Wednesday, where 52% said Biden should resign while just 39% disagree and 9% are unsure. Amazing stuff. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest Established Air Conditioning Company. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best and building a terrific performing arts center in downtown Naples. You can find out more by visiting golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Michael Cannon, Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. Right now, we have with us William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure, William. Tell us about the Cato Institute. You bet. We're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of a free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. So, William, uh, the twists and turns of the uh, 
the uh, infrastructure bill continue to wind its way through Congress. Maybe you could bring us an update. Indeed. Um, so I'm happy to report that within the Democratic Party in Congress, a circular firing squad is shaping up. Um, so on the one hand, we have moderates who don't want to spend any more than $1.2 trillion, and that's in the Infrastructure Improvement and Jobs Act. It's a bipartisan bill, as we've discussed before, that passed the Senate with, 19, with the support of, of 19 GOP senators, um, and it entails about $500 billion worth of new spending paid for by budget gimmicks that would ultimately add about a quarter trillion dollars to the deficit. On the other hand, we have progressives who don't want to go any lower than $3.5 trillion, and that's in their Democrat-only human, quote-unquote, infrastructure bill. And that is, as we've discussed before, has virtually every progressive wish and goal under, imaginable I mean, under the sun is within that bill. Yeah. Um, so you'll note, your listeners will note that those two camps are mutually exclusive. Um, so one side won't go higher than $1.2 trillion, and the other side won't go lower than $3.2 or $3.5 trillion. Hmm. I mean, there, there's a gulf between the two sides. Um, and this week, sort of the, the division really broke out into the open. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin, uh, who was one of the authors of the $1.2 trillion bipartisan measure, and, and of course he's a, he's a moderate within the Democrat Party, um, he wrote a, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal calling for a strategic pause in spending. Uh, basically, he, he called for Democrats to shelve the $3.5 trillion measure. Um, so immediately, AOC took to Twitter um, and accused uh, the Manchin, Senator Manchin, her, her peer in the Democrat Party, of a bipartisan corruption. That's what she referred to it as. So <laughs> clearly the gloves are coming off. And as I've noted uh, before, repeatedly, um, the hope is that, that you know, given the slim majorities that uh, Democrats have in, in both chambers of Congress, that these mutually exclusive positions within the Democrat caucus will ultimately sink both measures. So my question is, do you think Nancy Pelosi will take a half a loaf rather than no loaf at all? In other words, uh, she's claimed that she won't even address the 3.5 or the uh, 1.2 trillion dollar measure if they don't uh, first deal with the 3.5 trillion dollar measure. What are your thoughts, well, Bob? That is the sixty-four thousand dollar question. So to date, Pelosi has publicly sided with the progressives, who, as you said, say we're not even going to consider the 1.2 trillion dollar measure unless we get the 3.5 trillion dollar measure. Um, that said, she made a deal with moderates, as we spoke of last Friday, whereby the $1.2 trillion bill is supposed to come up for a vote by September 27th. And September 27th, it, it is inconceivable that the, the reconciliation package, that is the $3.5 trillion Democrat-only package, would be ready by that. So uh, basically the clock is ticking. We don't know. I mean, publicly she's sort of playing both sides of the coin. Um, uh, we'll see. I'm not quite sure uh, uh, how she could proceed. Uh, uh, you know, again, with the moderates and progressives have staked out mutually exclusive positions. I mean, and she has a, what, a three-vote majority at this point within the House of Representatives. So there's virtually no wiggle room. And again, I'd say I'm, I'm more optimistic than I've ever been, cautiously oh, optimistic, great. that all of this will fall apart. I hope so. Joe Manchin turns out to be the most powerful man in, <laughs> in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I hope he keeps his backbone. Say, I want to turn, or turn our attention to the uh, Supreme Court and what's happening, making some important decisions that are really getting folks all stirred up. What are your thoughts? Well, indeed. So uh, three very important decisions coming right down the pike. And, and I should stress at the outset that these are preliminary decisions. I mean, the court, in essence, was, just, was making a decision whether or not to pause the measure in question while litigation wended its way through federal courts. So it was a, by a 5-4 vote. Um, the court refused, as I'm sure your listeners have heard, uh, it's been splashed across the front, front pages of newspapers across the country, um, refused to, to intervene and pause a Texas uh, abortion law that, in, a, in effect, uh, deputizes citizens to 
ferret out uh, abortions that occurred after a heartbeat has been detected, after six weeks. Um, so uh, that's the one that's been getting most of the attention. I should stress, again, the preliminary nature of this decision at this point. Um, I think it is highly likely that either a state court or a federal court um, will, in fairly short order, pause that Texas law. Um, but that aside, uh, the other two big ones were in Biden versus, Tex- uh, versus Texas. This is about two weeks ago. The, the Supreme Court refused to uh, stop a lower court order that had effectively required the Biden administration to reinstate the Remain in Mexico policy, a Trump era, one of the marquee Trump era immigration policies. And finally, by uh, another 6-3 vote, the Supreme Court refused to intervene and, and stop a lower court from um, nixing, in, ex- in essence, the eviction moratorium coming out of HHS, uh, the Health and Human Services. So uh, I just note that two of the three opinions uh, go directly against the Biden administration and sort of add on to is this ongoing uh, number of court losses that I've pointed to in prior conversations that are indicative, perhaps, uh, of this administration's absence of competence. So, Remain in Mexico, I haven't seen any news at all about whether this is now being enforced because of the Supreme Court decision. Do you know anything about that? Oh, I cannot speak to that directly. Um, uh, uh, note this as well. I mean, I, uh, there has been a media blackout, as I understand it, uh, along the facilities at the border, something that the media has, has not expressed a great deal of outrage about from what I can discern. So were the administration to defy the court, I wonder whether or not we'd find out via uh, yeah. you know, the mainstream media. That's so interesting. Hey, with the little time we have left, uh, the Social Security Administration is running out of money, and uh, some word that they're going to be cutting off benefits by, uh, or re- curtailing benefits by 2034. Any thoughts? Well, just the latest report, this was from the Old Age and Survivors Insurance Trust Fund, um, and they were analyzing the impact of pandemic spending, the $5.5 trillion that Congress just spent over the last year and a half, um, uh, how that would affect long-term the Social Security plan, and as you intimated, they basically found that it would uh, move up a year from 2035 to 2034 when the program would start to run out of funds and have to curtail benefits. Uh, the big picture is, look, this is on top of our $28 trillion national debt. Yeah. Um, it sure does make you wonder about the $4 trillion the Democrats, or the progressives at least, um, seem hell-bent upon spending. Not only that, but they want to uh, reduce the age to qualify for Social Security. Their answer to this dilemma (laughs) is to spend more money. It's just absurd. You just can't make this stuff up. You're exactly right. I actually read that only an hour ago, and that's a great point. I mean, their their answer seems to be stick your head in the sand and, and indeed make the program uh, insolvent even faster. I mean, it, it is absurd and, and makes you question our, our, our present day leadership. Absolutely, William. I just so much genuinely appreciate your commentary here in the show, William Yatman, again, research fellow at the Cato Institute. The website Cato.org, C-A-T-O. dot org. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Coming up um, uh, from the same organization, Michael Cannon, Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Lyndon and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. 
Blue Provence French restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social, a new refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app and check it out by going to choicesocial.us. That's choicesocial.us. Coming up, I'm going to visit with my wife, Linda. We'll be talking about current global events, but right now we have with us Michael Cannon. He's Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here, Bob. Thank you, Michael. So is there any update or any news on the COVID uh, Delta variant front? Well, there is. It looks like there might be... Uh, we might have reached the peak of the Delta spike. Uh, it's a little too soon to be confident about that, uh, but one hopes that, like the uh, original variant, reached a peak and caseloads began to fall, that that's what's happening with the Delta mm. variant as well. Of course, uh, the number one thing that we can all do to try to reduce the transmission of the virus, caseload of severe COVID and COVID deaths is to vaccinate because the evidence shows that vaccination dramatically reduces the risk of severe COVID, of hospitalization, and of death. And um, the, the more the population we vaccinate, uh, the quicker this uh, this. Delta spike is going to end, but also the more likely it becomes that we won't get another variant that, that is even more problematic because the more this virus gets to replicate, the more mutations there will be, and the more, li more likely it becomes that we'll get another even more nasty variant. So, yeah, so again, vaccinating, I think, is the most important thing we can do to contain this public health crisis. So, so, Michael, I've heard that uh, people who have been vaccinated now become more vulnerable to the new variant that, that arises and that people are getting what they call breakthrough cases and so forth. But in, in many cases, uh, that it's increasing their liability or likelihood of getting uh, the new v variants when they arise. Any truth to that? It is not increasing their likelihood of getting the variant. It's doing the opposite. It's giving your body the ability to fight the new Delta variant, there's a possibility that there could be a variant that the vaccines do not help your body combat that, that is able really to break through mm -hmm. the virus. But that's not what is happening. Uh, uh, that's not what is happening now. There's, there are some breakthrough cases. Yes. Uh, uh, there, there always will be. I'm not aware of a vaccine that is 100% effective in all cases. But when you're up in the upper 90s, that's a very highly effective vaccine. Mm -hmm. And the breakthrough cases that we have seen are not surprising yeah. because when you give the vaccine to tens of millions of people, uh, a, a small percentage applied to tens of millions of people is still, it, 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 it will be noticeable. And you, will, you may know someone who, who has a breakthrough case. I know a number of people who have. Yeah. And, but what the evidence shows is that even when you get those breakthrough cases, 
they are much less severe. The risk of death is much less likely. And the risk of what they call long COVID uh, uh, may uh, appears to go down as well, because, primarily because the risk of severe COVID goes down. So I'm, I've never heard this term, long COVID. What's that all about? It is the concern that, uh, the concern, there's evidence to show that some people have, uh, once they recover from the acute phase of, uh, of COVID-19, they still have lingering symptoms. They still have difficulty breathing. There can be fatigue that can last six months or, or, uh, or more in a small percentage of cases. And, uh, there are, uh, there's not a lot of uh, solid data about this because we are learning about this as it's happening. COVID hasn't been around for that long. Right. And so, but, but there does seem to be evidence of uh, long-term symptoms for some people, uh, for some small percentage of cases. And that should really temper the concerns that people have about long-term effects of the vaccine. That's one of the objections you hear from people who uh, are what we say, what we call vaccine hesitant, who haven't vaccinated yet, is that we don't know what the long-term effects from the vaccine are. Right. And so, just because we haven't, the vaccines haven't been around that long, and that's true, we haven't had that long to study them. However, the history of vaccines suggests that if there are going to be negative side effects from vaccines, they're going to show up initially in the first month or so. Mm-hmm. But if, and if they don't, there are, no, there are going to be no long-term effects. And, uh, and even if you're still concerned about that, you have to weigh that concern against the effect of long co- the long-term effects of getting COVID, yeah. uh, which we do, uh, we do have evidence on that. And there do appear to be long-term effects. Well, as, you, as I've, I'm sure I've mentioned to you on the show, I've, I've not been vaccinated. I uh, take uh, solace in the fact that the governor's provided us now the uh, monoclonal antibodies available with no prescription. We can just go to a site seven days a week, and we can, as my understanding, I've talked to a lot of people that have had that, and it's, it's cleared up the symptoms pretty quickly. So uh, I'm going to wait and find out what's going to happen, what the long-term effects might be of this vaccine before I'm going to dip my toe in that water. And and we have talked about how uh, about our mutual uh, our, our shared conviction that people should get to make their own health care decisions, including uh, right. Bob Harden. Uh, but we've also talked about how I'm concerned about you if you're not getting vaccinated because that makes you much more vulnerable yeah. uh, to this to this illness. And um, and and uh, cures are nice. It, we don't we don't have. A, a, an acute, a cure for acute COVID, yes, uh, but we do have the vaccines, which are practically a cure. Mm. Well, I would, I would, I would classify them more as a therapeutic because apparently, once you take the vaccine, you can still pass it on to other people. You still uh, can't catch it again. So, uh, I would describe it more as a therapeutic that reduces your chance of severe illness, not as a cure. Well, we have a drug now called Sovaldi for hepatitis C patients. It is not a 100% cure, but it does cure hepatitis C in something like 97% of cases. And uh, folks still refer to that as a cure. And I, because I, I certainly want to convey to people that uh, with hepatitis C that this can this drug can cure them and so i'd want to convey the same about the vaccine mm-hmm. uh so people know how tremendously effective and beneficial all right michael cannon again he is the uh, director of health studies at the cato institute michael i always appreciate your commentary we had uh, so many other things to talk about we didn't get to but perhaps next week thank you so much for joining next time. us okay thank you michael all right coming up we're going to be visiting with uh, jim carafano he is the vice president at uh, the uh Heritage Foundation will be talking about uh, why do we keep using stupid war slogans to, about, to talk about the war and other things. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598 598- 3889, that's 598 3889, or send an email to bobharden at hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598 3889, or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Linda Harden. Right now we have with us Jim Carafano. He is the Vice President in, in uh, National Security and Foreign Policy with the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thank you, Jim. Tell us about the Heritage Foundation for our listeners that may not be familiar. Yeah, so people always have these things about think tanks. They go, well, what the heck is that? And and that's, when I retired from the military, that's kind of what I thought, too. So Heritage is a a nonprofit, nonpartisan institution. Um, We're supported by 700,000 members of the Heritage Foundation. And we are... You know, kind of like a university without any students in the sense that we do research, but and there are people that do research at universities, but the difference is we do research based on conservative principles and come up with policy solutions. Uh, and then we we try to get America, our friends, our allies around the world, the federal government, state and local governments, to pay attention and and talk about and and work and delivering solutions that help keep America free, safe, and prosperous. So for a guy that wore a uniform, it's awesome. You know, I have the same sense of mission I had when I was in uniform. This is about going out and trying to make America a better place every day. It's pretty awesome. Heritage.org is the website. Terrific organization. So you've written several pieces recently. One One of them is Conservative Politics After Afghanistan. Maybe you can tell us about it. Well, you know, when you think of the conservative movement, you know, we, we're kind of like a buffet. You know, people go up and they go, you know, I have a serving of pro-life, you know, and maybe a serving of low taxes, you know, and I'm not really sure about the other stuff. <laughs> and I, I don't think that's going to cut it anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you know, normally in domestic politics, we've, we, we align with candidates who align with our views. So, you know, if you like Obamacare and I like Obamacare, I like you. On foreign policy, we tend to do the opposite. We tend to say, well, we trust the person we elected will sure to take care of everything. I, I think we've had a huge object lesson in the last eight months is yeah. that you know, we have to stop doing that. We, as conservatives, whether, whether we're military veterans or you know, PhDs or, or people that work in Walmart or, you have a, or are a farmer, we have to start taking foreign policy and national security issues seriously because they do affect our pocketbook. Yeah. They do affect our communities. They do affect our lives and our friends and our neighbors. And and we just have to stop outsourcing, thinking that somebody else is going to take care of these things. 
and what we think on them doesn't matter. You know, when you would talk to people for an election, they say, well, I'm not voting on foreign policy. I'm voting on, you name it, you know, uh, I'm voting on critical race theory, or I'm, I'm voting on, you know, child care. But the reality is, is you're picking a commander-in-chief. You're picking congressional and Senate representatives who are going to decide on these issues. And the, and, those, and the decisions that you make as an individual are going to affect your life and affect the world. And I just think that we need to take... And, it's, and you don't need to have planned the invasion of Normandy or have a doctorate from Harvard to, and it, to do these things. So, so, for example, if you look right now, not just on issues like Afghanistan, but on all the critical issues of the day, voter integrity, border security, immigration, inflation, you name it, uh, Americans are in a very different place than their president. And that's despite the fact you have the White House, Congress, almost every media outlet, every pundit telling you everything's just fine, our president's wonderful, he's doing perfect things. But Americans know the difference because they, they see how it impacts their everyday life, and they know this doesn't make sense to me. I want to understand what's going on. I want different. So we can do this as American citizens, mm-hmm. uh, be informed, and, and think for ourselves on these issues. And I think the lesson learned that we've had the last couple of weeks is how important that really is. Well, it's so well said. You know, Jim, it just reminds me of the, the admonition from Benjamin Franklin who walked out. He was asked, do we have a republic or a democracy uh, from the state house in, uh, in uh, Philadelphia? And he said, yeah, yes, if we deserve it or if we earned it. I forgot exactly what the... the or if question. we can keep it. If we can keep it. So basically his admonition at the time was, hey, guys, pay attention or you're going to lose it, right? Well, if you look at what's going on today, and, and look, um, I, people, look, you can go to Heritage and read my, I'm not the conspiracy guy, right? I'm not the guy with the tin hat. I mean, I, I just follow the data. Uh, but if you look at what's going on today, this administration does not act like a normal government. In a normal government, Elected officials, when things start going horribly wrong, they're like, oh, we need to get reelected. And so what do they do? They start changing. They fire people. They change their policies because they, they want to get voted back in. You think of, of Bill Clinton, for example, and how he changed dramatically um, after his first term because he wanted to get reelected. He started cutting deals with Newt Gingrich. He, he tried to be more moderate. Mm-hmm. So this administration doesn't do that. No. They've been plummeting in the polls. They're doing things that are angering Americans all over the place. And and what do they do? They double and redouble down yeah. on what they're doing. That is extraordinarily weird. And I think it's because they're not like a normal government. Because their goal is to amass political power, change the electoral system, get control of the economy, and so so elections don't matter anymore. And so it's, they're not worried about being accountable to the American people. They're worried about how can I control all the levers of government so I never have to really be accountable yeah. to the American people. I think that is such so well said, absolutely. And, you know, to me, it looks like he's do, what he's doing is on purpose. He had an opportunity to save more Americans. He had an opportunity to do this in a different way. What he did was so stupid, it makes me ask, did he do it on purpose? Well, you know, I will say to the president's credit, he has a, a 40-year track record of making really bad decisions. <laughs> yeah. the, the difference is, is he's never had to live with the consequences of his decision. Yeah. This, this is very different from somebody like Donald Trump, for example. Okay, Trump was never president before, but he ran companies. People were dependent upon him. If he got things wrong, he went bankrupt. You know, mm-hmm. buildings would collapse. He had a lifetime of making decisions and recognizing that if the that if the consequences turned out bad, people, his family, his reputation, they would all suffer, and he would be responsible for that. Biden's never had that. Biden's had a lifetime of having political opinions, and if they didn't work out, then he was never held accountable for the consequences of them. This is the first time in a 40-year political career where what he decides actually impacts the lives of human beings, and it's and he is directly attributable for that. He's never experienced that before. He's actually not very good at it. And I don't think we sh- anyone should be surprised that he's actually terrible. At, at, because he's a terrible decision maker, we shouldn't be surprised that when he's faced with the consequences of that, 
he's horrible in dealing with them. Uh, so well said, Jim. I mean, I think he sees everything through a political lens and doesn't have the capacity or hasn't demonstrated the capacity to think about it in terms of our uh, strategically or in terms of the best interests of the American people. Jim, you know, I just so much appreciate uh, your commentary here on the show. We had so much more to talk about. I hope you'll come back on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Love the show. Love what you do. So important. Keep it up, brother. Thank, Thank you, you so for having much. me. Thank you, Jim. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Linda Harden. She is my wife, and she has a lot to say about what's happening in the world. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, Downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs, and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840. Or visit the website, nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. And that's just one of the amazing initiatives of the uh, Foundation for Government Accountability. I hope you'll visit the website, thefga.org. We have with us Linda Harden. Linda's my wife, but also one of the most well-informed folks about what's happening around. Linda, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. You know, I, I, I wanted to have you on because I think it's really cool that you had a chance to have lunch with Mark Meadows and Marjorie Taylor Greene yesterday. Maybe you could tell us about it. And Mary Miller, who I'd never heard of before, but she is she is an amazing congresswoman out of uh, the 15th District in Illinois. And I sat next to her at lunch, and I could have sat there and talked to her for hours. Yeah. A, she talks a lot. Yeah. But B, she has a lot to say. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was really amazing. Mark Meadows was great. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I was most excited to see that she was there because, you know, we've watched her on, on Bannon's War Room so often, but she is, um, she's a fighter. And yeah. she And she just doesn't, she just doesn't care who opposes her. She just knows she has a mission, and she's going for it. So when she first walked into the, the luncheon yesterday, I stopped her, um, and I, I told her about how often uh, we had seen her on, on Bannon and, um, and how much we appreciated her being a trailblazer when, when so few people in Congress are. And, and you could tell she appreciated it because... Even Mary Miller, uh, this congresswoman from, from Illinois, said, you know, I'm doing my fight, but Marjorie Taylor Greene is just like blazing a trail that, that every congressperson needs to follow. It was amazing. She has no fear. 
Uh, so any good scoop? Anything come out of the meeting? Uh, any? Uh... Well, you know, a couple things. I One of the reasons I wanted to go there was um, because, like you say, I, I keep up on what's going on. And I wanted to bring some things to light where, where people may have lost sight of it, and I'm glad I did. One of those things was um, Mark Meadows got up. He's a very nice guy. Of course, we had met him before at a Cato Institute dinner uh, years ago, and he actually... Pretended like a, he remembered. That was the Club for Growth, wasn't it? I, I don't know, but I remember Bob Levy sponsored yeah. it. Yeah. Or one, was one of the sponsors. I don't, it doesn't matter. Right, right. It was at Gray Oaks, and he was there. Right. And he's put on a few pounds since then. That's okay. <laughs> um, uh, but he, he got up and, and said a few words and told um, an interest, a couple interesting stories about the Trumpster, which if we have time, I can, I can share. But um, he opened it up for questions, and... and couple things I wanted to ask him. One was, um, who are the good guys in Congress? Because we have so lost sight of, I mean, we don't know who the good guys and the bad guys anymore. We've got, we've got people who, the 19, uh, people who voted for the, who were Republicans who voted for the infrastructure bill. Yeah. And, and the Democrats always, um, fight together. They're always on the same side, but the Republicans are so scattered. Yeah. And and I and I in my question to Mark Meadows I said, "You know what? You need to follow Marjorie Taylor Greene's example by getting out there and primarying these rhinos because yeah. they need to be out of Congress." Right. And he, and he was very candid and said, "You know what? When when people get to Congress, they lose sight of why they why they're there. Yeah. They get all the the TV cameras and and the the lobbying money and all this stuff and they just kind of are steered in the wrong direction, which I thought it was... A great observation. It was, it was, it was really cool. Then I asked him about, I said, you know what, the, me the media refuses to cover it. Bannon War Room covers it. Tucker has, has had people on, um, Tucker Carlson has had people on about it. But virtually no one else will cover it, and that, and that is um, the political prisoners that are kept in, in the D.C. jail from this January 6th, quote-unquote, insurrection yeah uh, meanwhile you know nancy pelosi is trying to target anyone and everyone who had anything to do with that yeah except for the fbi and the antifa and whatever it's all but political. i said but i said these poor people are not allowed to cut their hair or very little um personal hygiene is allowed they're beaten up and whatever and meanwhile nobody except oh by the way marjorie taylor green matt gates um paul gosar and um louis gomer are, are looking out for them. I mean, they actually went down to the D.C. jail and to the Department of Justice to find out what was going on. And guess what they were told? They were trespassing. And I said, these, this needs to be put on the forefront and get these people some justice. Absolutely. And, oh, by the way, Mark Meadows, did you know that the, one of the attorneys that is trying to work for these um, people in the D.C. jail has disappeared? M.I.A. Was he Clinton's? Clinton? We don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he has absolutely disappeared. And, he, and Mark Meadows was so cool. And he said, um, he admitted that, that they've lost sight. I mean, that, that was a big admission. Yeah. Because there, he's working on so many things with this new group that he's with. But, but he said, Ginny Thomas, the, the, um, the wife of Chief, Chief Justice Clarence Thomas, called him 10 days ago and, and said the same thing. And, said, and she told him, Mark, you have to get on this because these people have languished in this jail yeah, it's far so too true. long. So true, absolutely. By the way, uh, yesterday we watched uh, Tucker Carlson today and this guy, Teddy uh, Daniels. Whose son is named Jack. His son is named Jack. What a what an outstanding. This guy's running for Congress up in Scranton, Scranton PA. And uh, I tell you, I'm really pulling for him. He's a Marjorie Taylor Greene without a dress. I'll tell you, he's just so, he's a firebrand. He's great. Served in Afghanistan, was shot, uh, did service there. He came back, started a couple of companies. They all became very successful. And he certainly, uh, he his compass points due north. I mean, this guy really walks the walk. Well, before he even served in Afghanistan, his story was so remarkable because he was a, he was a police officer for 15 years. Yeah, so he comes into the recruiting office. At the age of 35. At the age of 35, and the Marines said, no, we can't take anybody that age, but we go next door there, the Army might take you. <laughs> and uh, he served, they said, look, based on your scores, you can do anything you want to in the Army. He says, oh, I want to be in the infantry. 
God bless him. And he, what a great story. Anyhow, when you but, with, but look, but look him up. I mean, anybody who's interested, just look him up. Um, uh, he's, uh, he's he's Bob said he's running for Congress in in the Scranton district. But but this man is like you're right. Is Marjorie Taylor Green? Um, but he's big with a lot of tattoos. Yeah, and and he's got the same. You know, let Attitude. him come after me. Yeah, let him come after me. Hey, listen, for the we do have a little time, so I'll tell the story because I think it's it's so instructive and and uh, really amusing about Mark Meadows and his phone call. Well, I have to say first, when when Mark Meadows first came in, and he was introducing himself to to the table, there was there were only about probably uh, fifteen twenty of us there, which was great. It was intimate, be- and and we could actually talk to these folks. But but when Mark Meadows came in, I stopped him and and I said, um, "How's the Trumpster?" And he said, he's doing, the president's doing great. And he says, and I said, well, just tell him that we love him and we are behind him a thousand percent. And he says, I will tell him. And he says, um, he says, I can't tell you how many other people uh, tell me the exact same thing. There are so many people. And I tell, he says, I tell the president all the time, you've got so much support. So the story, when, when Mark Meadows got up to speak, one of the stories he told was, um, when he was chief of staff, he says, you don't sleep when you're chief of staff for Donald Trump. You just don't. And he says, um, he says, I finally got to sleep at like 1230, 1 a.m., which I thought uh, the president had, had gone to bed because he really, I mean, he doesn't sleep that much. So I was sleeping, and he says, um, because of security and everything, we put our telephones in the kitchen because he says, you don't know people, but China is watching your every move. So get away from your phones huh. as often as possible, which I thought was fascinating. So then, um, it, it, so he has a Secret Service detail too because of all the threats and whatever they got. So Mark Meadows, his wife, Mark was, was um, home alone and his wife was, was on the road. So he hears, gets a knock on the door and it's like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning and, and he goes to the door and opens it a crack and it's the Secret Service. And they said, he's, the Secret Service, and said, the president needs to see you. And Mark Meadows is going, couldn't it have waited to like 5.30? <laughs> Even 5, but 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So, so he, he, of course, closed the door and, and, and got to see the president. But his wife said to him, um, she said, when you answered the door, did you answer the door in your skivvies? And he said, she Yes, I did. <laughs> and, and, and she asked him, was it a female Secret Service officer that came to the door? And he says, yes, it was. That's such a great story. But, you know, but isn't it so cool that, that, that Donald Trump, I mean, Biden can't even stay awake during a meeting with the Israeli prime minister. I know. And Trump is awake 24-7. What a great story. It is a great story. And it, the unbounded energy of uh, President Trump in juxtaposition to Sleepy Joe, <laughs> that takes on new meaning, Sleepy doesn't it? Sleepy is a compliment. He is just unconscious. Yeah, well, he's incompetent as well. So uh, hopefully uh, things will begin to turn a little bit and we'll, have, uh, we'll see better results. By the way, it, it's, it's worth noting that um, Donald Trump is giving interviews to everyone. Yeah. He, is, he is giving interviews to everyone. And coinciding with that are all of these election audits that are that are starting or or that have started or are going to be started within the next couple of weeks. I think that's so fascinating. It is indeed, Linda Harden. Just genuinely appreciate your commentary on the show. Thanks so much for sharing your experiences from yesterday. It was great. I wish it. I wish I could have been there longer, but it was it was awesome. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. All right. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Monday. We'll visit with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current global events. Larry Reed is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. And we'll visit with Jim McTagg. He's a former Barron's Washington Bureau chief, real smart guy. He wrote a couple of novels since he retired. Uh, Follow the leader and shake the money tree. They're great reads. I always appreciate hearing from you about the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Bob Harden at Hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.